Welcome to When Did You Know? I'm Ariel and on this episode I'm joined by the LGBT plus poet laureate Trudy Housen. Trudy has been the inaugural LGBT poet laureate since 2016 and she writes and performs poetry nationally and internationally for LGBT plus days and events as well as raising the profile and accessibility of LGBT plus poetry. Trudy's work has been featured in London's West End, The Telegraph, The Times, Channel 4 and the BBC and she's performed extensively throughout India, Southeast Asia and Burma as well as across the UK. Welcome Trudy. Hello and thank you so much for inviting me, how lovely. You're welcome and thank you for joining me. So first off, to begin with, every episode starts with the same three questions. The first one, how do you identify? I am she, her and I'm a lesbian. And when did you come out? Uh, I knew from when I was quite young. Uh, So I would say that my parents knew but thought it was a phase and I'd grow out of it but then I didn't. So then I became sort of bisexual, really. Um, but I, I, I'd say that I knew very, very early on from when I was probably 11, 10, 11. And was it something that triggered that? So what, or was it that innate? Because I know for some of us, we have something that, uh, that kind of triggers it. And we're like, oh, that's why I feel this way. Or some of us just always know. So was there anything that triggered it? What, what made you realise you were different, I guess? Yeah, well, you know what? I wrote a, being a poet, I did write a poem about it. So I'm now going to read that poem. Uh, it's called Coming Out Kiss. It was that kiss that did it blew away my misconceptions about lads, about fancying them, that is, about wanting to be their girlfriend. Tracy was trouble with a capital T, tall, tempestuous, a truant and a tease. She cut a swathe through all the boys, discarded them like broken toys. I was 12, she was 16, and a walking, talking, living dream. I was bored with secondary school. I preferred dancing and playing the fool. On that day, she noticed me, said she'd teach me how to be a femme fatale like she was. The first lesson was kissing. And I have to say, Ariel, I I never looked back really. <laughs> it was sort of crystal clear to me after that. How has poetry helped in, I guess, affirming your LGBT plus identity or your lesbian identity? Well, the thing about poetry, it's like um, a secret vice. You know, it can be no one need ever read your poetry. You can write your innermost thoughts, work out really hateful, troublesome ecstatic things in poetry and it can be just for yourself it can be your best friend your confidant Uh, but it also can help you really clarify your thoughts about stuff and in some ways now looking back on my poetry it's almost like a diary of of my life so this is why I'm very keen to encourage everyone to write poetry we all have a poem in our hearts you know you can Poetry has many uses, but it's uh, essentially also a work of creation and art. So write a poem. And it sounds it sounds quite therapeutic. Is, is poetry your kind of therapy, I guess? Mm, 
it can be, you know, if I'm broken hearted or, you know, grief stricken, I do write poetry uh, and it's very, can be very cathartic and painful uh, to, to write it. So poetry uh, can be very helpful, but I would say that these acute emotions, it's, that's not in the main what I write poetry about, particularly not in this post, uh, the LGBT Poet Laureate post. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So how did the that role come into existence, really? Okay, so I'd been... Uh, <laughs> my lover died in 1998, and frankly, I thought I'd never recover from it. And so I decided I didn't want to live in, in England anymore and infect everyone with my depression and grief. So I tried a life experiment where I lived one third of the year on the coast, one third of the year in my flat in central London and one third of the year in Southeast Asia. And I did that for over 10 years actually and wrote a lot of poetry and performed extensively during that period. Uh, I came back to London and had a poem I was invited to write a poem for the London Olympics, uh, which uh, eventually they, they decided not to use. They paid me for it, huge amount of money, and uh, then uh, for some reason didn't use it, but the BBC used it as a trailer in the run up to the Olympics, they filmed it. And that massively escalated my professional poetry profile. So um, I found myself in a situation where I was doing lots of TV, radio, uh, performing just that one poem, which is called Going for Gold. Uh, and I'd been previously an actress and also done quite a bit of TV and started to hate it. Uh, you know, that whole thing about, you know, being a young woman and working in the entertainment industry. So I had to sort of make a decision because obviously I still wanted to be creative and do stuff. So I decided I was going to really just focus on the poetry, which I loved. And, and of course my own work. So I wasn't reading anyone's crap, performing anyone's crap lines anymore. Um, I wasn't a serious type of actress. I was very much light entertainment. So I uh, started concentrating on poetry and I noticed that there was no LGBT poetry London scene. No, none. It was just a couple of guys running these uh, poetry events. So I started uh, working, performing only LGBT plus stuff in the, all the little clubs and everything. And Camden Forum at that time was just setting up a, a, a little poetry group. So I started working in that group as a volunteer and ended up running that group. Uh, and because of my professional contacts, um, I was able to get a residency in the West End. Uh, so it started, and that was an open mic evening, and I did that for five years. And it was just fabulous, because people from our community were just coming. I mean, I had a couple of guests, guest poets, professional poets, and myself hosting it, and people were just really pouring their heart out about their life and their experience and it was sort of funny and tragic and moving and and there was just so much energy and vibrancy in those events and I was encouraging everyone to be very social and flirt with each other so you know the events were really popular so uh, this 
escalated the profile of um, Camden Forum, who were actually officially, quote, running the events, although, of course, there was no money. I wasn't getting paid at all for any of this, not even expenses at that time. Uh, so they decided they wanted to use that to um, approach people who gave out funding. And that was very popular event for them. So they um, they wanted to raise the profile of that poetry event. So I said, you should have, we should have maybe poetry competitions or lifetime achievement awards for LGBT poet laureates. You know, what about poet laureate LGBT? So then they decided they wanted me to do it. And I was, remember at the time saying something like, I'm not sure I want to do that. How, what will I have to do? And they were saying, oh, nothing more than what you're doing. No, it'll be just the same. So I said I'd do it for three years uh, for, for them. And uh, that's essentially what I did. And during that period, uh, was able to use my professional contacts as an actress to, how can I say, develop the brand, I think it is. So that no one, you know, it was just amazing. People would say, LGBT Poet Laureate, have we got one? And I'd say, we deserve one, you know. Why not? We're worth it. So that's what I've been doing for some time. The f particularly the first three years was building up that profile. So um, yeah, so that's, that's how I got the post. The first poem I did when I was Poet Laureate was one I wrote for Ida Hobbit. And using my people I'd worked with before, I was able to to uh, perform this poem on Sky TV, Network TV. So it was 2016, it was the first LGBT poem to go on network TV. It, so I'm gonna read that one now. I'm your brother and sister. I'm both Mrs. and Mr. I'm gay, bi, trans, non-binary. I am myself. I'm your father and mother, husband, auntie, friend, and lover. I'm different and the same. I am your family. I'm black, white, pink, every hue, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Jew, skinhead, goth, punk, new, romantic. I am me. I am you. I'm your district nurse, your teacher, the boy and girl next door someone in the street. I'm your neighbor. I'm no better than you or worse. No richer, poorer, blessed or cursed. Just part of the same gravitational wave as you are. I'm now working with Westminster. Uh, because I, I'm actually on the border of Camden and Westminster. I live just, uh, just off Drury Lane, very central. So I started working with Westminster um, for LGBT plus forum. And in fact, I'm the co-chair now. So uh, I recommend everyone to check out our website and join us. We're really making great changes. We helped get all those um, streets closed so that our bars could flourish. So we're sort of for anyone who lives, works or plays in Westminster, which uh, I think is probably most people <laughs> at some point goes to Soho, don't they? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I remember the first time, because um, I grew up in the Midlands and the first time 
um, from like 18, 19 and going to Soho and Old Compton Street. And it was just the most mesmerizing place in the world because I'd never seen anything like that before. And I was like, oh. yeah, it's our place. You know, it's it was it was just too good an opportunity for me to. So I'm heading up their arts and cultures wing. So we've got we've got some fabulous events coming up. Thank God now that we can meet face to face. But um, yeah, join us, see what see what we're doing. So that's basically how I got got the post. And it was just the timing was great. Uh, because it hadn't been too long a distance since I'd got the been uh, the London Olympic poem, so I was able to use those contacts as leverage for the post. And of course, you know, London Pride absolutely loved it. All the big LGBT organisations, they were like, "Wow, yes!" You know, so so that's that's how it came about. And and I think it really highlights a, a need for creative outlets that that in a way and particularly I would say in other parts of the UK this might be felt more acutely that we so I'm based in the southwest we have two LGBT venues in a quite a big city where I am and pride here is still a very much community event and that's quite nice it's still very much about encouraging people to be out more but there isn't much room for creative outlet. And I think when you were talking about the open mic night and people sharing their poetries and sharing their stories, that kind of still, I feel, is really missing from our community. And it's very much this feeling that the gay community is often pushed towards bars and clubs. And, you know, that's great. That's a valid part of any community. But it's kind of masking over some issues and we're not really getting out those feelings, which I guess can come out through poetry. Yeah, but also, you know, we're we're now coming out of a really tricky time. You know, let's face it, we've been like hamsters going round a wheel in a cage. We're all absolutely gagging to get out and meet people, you know, wherever it is. But I I think you're right. I think it's not just the bars, though. I think it's also mobile phone and apps and dating, you know, where anyone can pretend to be whoever they like. And that whole sort of feeling about being authentic and actually communing, communicating with people in a very authentic, direct and real way uh, is important. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you've heard one of my poems. One thing about my poems, they're not highbrow. I want people to get my poems and relate to them. You know, I, I'm just so not interested in any kind of cliquey or snobby kind of stuff. You know, I just think, I think we're all interesting, whatever we do, wherever we live. And we've just got to individual, I think, individually recognize that, that we are brave people, you know, that we are groundbreakers, that we're often people who've completely had a different kind of life previously, you know, and and reinvented, uh, reinvented ourselves. And I think that yeah, I think we've just got to try and relax and just tune into the real authentic people that we are and let, not get hung up on all this social media stuff, which can be make us feel rather inadequate. So going back, going back to your poetry as well, I particularly loved um, the piece, People Will Say That We're Queer. What was the inspiration behind that? So how did that piece come about? Oh, you know what? That was for a very specific thing and it was set to music. 
Um, okay, so Andrew Lumsden, it was the 50th anniversary of the uh, decriminalization of the uh, homosexuality bill. And um, he's a, he organized um, a poetry event in White, uh, a very, it was a very posh lunch actually, in Whitehall. And I was invited to go along and do some poetry. And a friend of mine also, who's a wonderful pianist, uh, Nigel was also invited to play the grand piano. So I said, why don't, um, why don't I, I write some words and let's do it to some of the old classics. So when I was, at, I was saying those words and the music in the background uh, was people will say we're in love. Don't throw bouquets at me, you know, that one, except he was playing it in a minor chord. So instead of it sounding all happy, which is the song, it was sounding very dark and secret. And I was... Uh, talking in first, the poem was in first person about what it must have been like for those men during that period who were working uh, specifically uh, in, in Parliament in, you know, and were being blackmailed or working in the Secret Service or those kind of very conventional men. So that was a very, um, I do a lot of commission work I love commission work because um, I love doing the, the study of it and then writing a, a poem specifically for an event or a person or so that was that was one of the poems I wrote for that specific event so that's not one that I actually perform very regularly because I don't have Nigel playing. I think I love I love the idea of it the words against that traditional very heterosexual um song and I love that that contrast and and also I can't really think of probably you know everyone's talking about Jamie but that's about it in terms of really really queer musicals <laughs> like there's not many where the main characters or the main characters just happen to be queer I think that's the difference is that you know there are there's kinky boots as everyone everyone's talking about Jamie but the story is centered around queer identity which is great but actually when you think back to you know Rogers and Hammerstein or um, or any Andrew Lloyd Webber more recent there's never any queer characters at the centre who they just happen to be and that's I think that's why I was particularly drawn to that piece. Well although in the actual shows because I was when I was an actress I did musical theatre and I was in the number one tour of Jesus Christ Superstar so we were touring up and down the UK and all the men there was only one man who wasn't gay so, you know, there was all the disciples and Jesus was having an affair with Judas and then Peter got involved with it. So there was all these sort of dramas. They were all, all gay, but of course, you know, they were still uh, playing that part, you know, going when the, well, some of them were obviously gay, very camp, but usually, uh, you know, the girls who came to see the show and some girls followed the show all the way around on tour. They didn't want to see them being gay. They wanted them to be their heartthrob. And in a way, that was part of the deal, you know, that you did play along with that. You were, you know, my, my acting uh, roles were Nice Girl Next Door. And I was told categorically by my agent that, you know, I could not come out, even as bisexual. I had, because I had to be sexually and romantically available to the people. It was one of the reasons why I stopped acting. That was, I, I wrote that down actually, Ali, when you were talking about um, your life as an actress and how difficult was it? Hell. No, it, uh, well, actually not just being a lesbian, being a young woman, you know, I, I mean, we're talking about 
80s, uh, early 90s. I mean, young, pretty girls, you were just sexual fodder, you know, going to interviews. I mean, it's still going on, you know, but then it was just like, there was no restraint whatsoever. You know, I had so many excuses I gave, you know. I couldn't convince myself that I found those ugly old men remotely sexually attractive, you know. Uh, so I just had to make lots of excuses and, oh God, I just, um, it was very disappointing because I went to drama school and that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, I did uh, help set up an organization called Women in Entertainment during that period. And I think that that organization is still going and does some very good work within, within the industry. But um, yeah, that's, that's why I left. Mm. I got sort of fed up with it, and really. I'm going to sort of take, take you back in time a little bit. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning that your parents always knew. How, how was it coming out to your parents? How, how was that relationship once you kind of affirmed who you were to them? Well, actually... They did, you know, I sort of, the person in that poem was my sister's best friend. And uh, when we went to secondary school, she went to high school and I failed my 11 plus. So I was with uh, the Tracy character. My sister was absolutely furious about me and Tracy. You know, we used to sneak back and, you know, different. <laughs> I mean, it was just, um, I suppose it was just a some girls do go through a phase, but um, it's like some boys go through a phase, but mm. it wasn't a phase for me. You know, I never, never grew out of it, although I would say that I was bisexual and just broke a number of boys' hearts afterwards, which was a shame because I, you know, I liked them, but just couldn't really, you know, do that whole getting married thing. So was Tracy the first? She the first and then? Yes. Um, when did you see your, I guess, a version of yourself in the world represented? Oh, okay. So perhaps I need to sort of set the scene. So I was brought up in a small working class mill town in Lancashire. As you can hear from my accent, it's true. I completely reinvented myself. So it was a very racist environment. Uh, and it was rough. Yeah, you had to. One thing about it, it made, made me very emotionally resilient and tough. But uh, I never met a single gay person or anyone who would dare to come out as being uh, gay uh, until, I, until I came to London. In fact, I never even met a middle class person till I came to London and really never thought I'd even get here. But I did know a lot about fear and about... Uh, brutality towards anyone who was different and racism. It really taught me some lessons, I must say, and uh, did influence the rest of my life because I'm a very keen advocate and supporter of, um, uh, of being anti-racist and supporting people who are in actually in any way different. Um, so what happened to me was that um, I was awarded a full bursary which now, of course, you, you, you don't get. But it paid for not only my tuition, but also my uh, accommodation, my food, any, anything else I needed. So I came to London and went to drama school. And I was sure that I would meet 
a lesbian <laughs> in London, <laughs> you know. So a number of things happened immediately. I went to drama school and the whole, uh, when I was a kid, I was a compulsive truant. I hated school. Uh, but in London, I started really seriously learning, doing art courses, meeting arty people, uh, you know, learning about dance and drama and the music scene and the club scene, of course, you know, met lots of other boys and girls my age, and we just hit the clubs, you know, and they were all people like me, you know, people coming from big places, tiny places to a big place and... I suppose I had a sort of vision about the kind of person that I'd hope I'd grow up to be. The possibilities of not my only friends being my sort of neighbors or people I went to school with and meeting all these different people. I mean, it, it, was, it was absolutely eye-opening. And I would say the beginning of my life. I mean, I was too excited to be terrified. You know what I mean? Of course, I never thought anything bad was going to happen because although I came from that horribly racist uh, and rather brutal background, my family were very loving and very supportive of me. So, you know, now I can see that although we were skint, I did truly come from a privileged background because that gave me the confidence to actually think, you know, that. I was worth something. And to anyone that's listening, you know, that's the thing. You just gotta feel that you're worth it. We are worth happiness. We are worth uh, being fulfilled, you know. Don't, don't give up, you know, don't think, oh God. I mean, we all have bad days, you know, you wake up and think, oh God, fuck, you know. <laughs> Can I do this? But, you know, in your core, you just gotta, just gonna hang on to that, that unique, that unique beauty that actually we all have, that's not to do with how we look or our innate style, you know, it's to do with huge amounts of different stuff. And I think um, you've said it a few times, you didn't quite say the word then, but resilience is the thing that I keep getting <laughs> from you and actually how resilient you are about how important resilience is in other people. Yeah. I mean, resilience is, it's, you know, sometimes it's hard work, but <laughs> what's the alternative? You know, I mean, feeling depressed and miserable. I had a time when my partner died, when I was plunged into a terrible depression, when really I felt that I'd be doing the people a favor by, by killing myself. So I do understand that depth of despair and hopelessness. Uh, I mean, it's one of those lessons I'd much rather I didn't, I hadn't learned, you know. <laughs> Some people seem to be blissfully unaware of anything happening, but uh, you know, I think we're we are all capable of more than we think, you know. And sometimes when you're tested, that's when you find out. And sometimes the only way of being tested is by just stepping outside that those safe perimeters and just going for what you want, even if it doesn't seem possible. Go again, going back in time a little bit and um, thinking back to your 11 year, 11, 12 year old self, what would you say to 11, 12 year old Trudy now? Oh, I'd say, don't worry. It's going to be all right. And P.S. You are not going to die young. <laughs> Thank you.
So this is the poem that I wrote People keep when people kept asking me what my job was, how to describe my job. So this is a poem about my job. Poetry is my lover, politics is my wife. Pleasing them is the driving force that governs my job and my life. Though not an easy option, it's a privilege and a thrill, pushing art to its limit to help change a law or a bill. Poetry has a resonance that reaches out to us all, challenges, inspires and amuses. It holds us all in its thrall. Art can make a difference in the way we think and act, express the things we need to say, make equality and justice fact. Thank you to Trudy for joining me on When Did You Know? And thank you to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. You can find out more about Trudy's work in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast or a long-term fan, thank you for listening each week. This show really means a lot to me. And if you love it, then the best way to support it is to subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review on whichever podcast platform you're using. It really means a lot that these stories are connecting with people all around the world. In the meantime, don't forget you can follow me at WDYKpod on Instagram and Twitter or email me on WDYKpod at gmail.com with questions, comments or even to volunteer yourself for an interview. Until next week.